Well, hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion on behalf of our staff, leaders, and all who call Zion home. Thank you so much for joining us, especially if you're new with us. Now, I also know that many of you are online watching this, and if that is you, I'd love it if you just do me a favor, say hello by simply just typing your name and where you're from in the comments, and we'd love to know that you're engaging with us, and we are so glad that you are watching with us today. Uh, at the beginning of the year, we began our new series called The Blessed Life, where we've been digging into the Beatitudes, the foundation of Jesus's greatest sermon, what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, because we're almost to the end of the series, I want to take a few moments to recap everything that we've talked about so far that we've been learning. Now, just a quick note, uh, every Beatitude flows into each other, so you need all of them to, well, you need the ones previously before to get to the current one. Now, it begins with Jesus beginning this whole teaching by taking his disciples and anybody else who wanted to listen on a giant field trip. He takes them to the side of a mountain. Now, this is so much cooler than just a nice, cool venue. Uh, it's actually, he's taking them to a mountain for a reason. You see, God does big things at mountains. In the Old Testament, we find Abraham climbing the mountain with his son Isaac to sacrifice him to the Lord, believing that's what he needed to do because that's what all the other gods demanded was that you sacrifice what's most important to you. But God delivered Isaac from sacrifice and actually provided something else, a ram. God meets Moses on Mount Sinai and gives his people, the Hebrews, the Torah or the, the law, the law of God. God meets the prophet Elijah after his confrontation at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. And there, after Elijah wins, he goes into hiding because he's still fearful. God meets him at Mount Horeb to bring comfort and peace. In the New Testament, now we find Jesus coming to bring a new law. So it's not that Jesus got rid of the old law, it's that he fulfilled it. And now he brings an even greater law, the law of love, the law of Christ, a new Torah. And it begins here on the Sermon on the Mount. If we go a little bit further in Jesus' ministry, we see that Jesus actually reveals his glory as God's son, God in flesh, to Peter, James, and John in what's called the transfiguration. And then last but not least, we actually find that Jesus is crucified on a mount called Golgotha. At the end of Jesus' ministry, he takes him to the top of Mount Olivet, and there he ascends and goes to heaven, leaving the Holy Spirit, but more, more importantly, a commission to his disciples to go out into the world to spread the gospel. After Jesus does this, he then sits down. And as the rabbi Jesus sits down, the disciples and all around him sit down as well. Why? To learn from the feet of their master. Now, when we began this series, I actually started off with a challenge. And that is that we would become the people of the book, the people of God's word. In fact, what we're trying to get to as a culture is that we begin to bring our Bibles to church. Now, if you're online, here's what I'd love for you to do. Just simply put in there, I got my Bible. And I want to encourage you to turn to scriptures as we talk about them, write notes. Heck, if you want to take a picture and send it and saying, hey, I've got my Bible open, that would be awesome. You see, we come together every Sunday to have an encounter with God, to meet with Jesus and the Holy Spirit through singing, but also through the word. 
So it's important that we actually bring our Bibles, that we're not just coming to hear from somebody, but to hear from the Lord. That we're coming to sit at the feet of Jesus together, and that comes by coming to hear the Word of God. All right, now, if you're new in faith, and maybe you don't have a Bible, hey, reach out to us, especially if you're online. We'll see about getting you one. If you're attending Zion, if you don't have a Bible or one that you can read, let us know. We'd love to hook you up with God's Word because it is so important to have. Now, remember that it's important to be reminded of the fact that the Beatitudes are not mental shifts. They're not new attitudes or self-help tips. The Beatitudes are actually the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer to bring transformation through the Holy Spirit, through God, so that we might become the people God intended us to be in the world. It's kind of a new kingdom constitution. This is what it looks like to be God's people. Now, every beatitude has two parts, a declaration and a promise. And the first three beatitudes begin with something that God wants to do inside of us. So let's start off with the internal what God is doing something in us. The declaration, blessed are the poor in spirit. The promise, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Only those who realize they are spiritually bankrupt, who have nothing to bring to a holy God, belong to Jesus' kingdom because they are completely dependent on him. The second one, the declaration, blessed are those who mourn. The promise, for they will be comforted. The poor in spirit mourn and are broken, heartbroken over their sins and the sins of the world. But God in his mercy comforts us. Leading to the third one, the declaration, blessed are the meek, the promise, for they will inherit the earth. When God comforts us in our brokenness over the sin in our lives and in the world, we become truly humbled by God's grace and mercy. We realize we are no better than anyone else. And instead of self-righteousness, we gain self-awareness. The result is that God entrusts the meek and the humble with his creation to become caretakers of the world. This change in us gives us a new desire. And instead of craving power and prestige and honor, we crave to know more of Jesus and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, because we want to become more like Jesus through the Spirit which leads us to what God wants to do inward. See, when in the fourth beatitude, when it says the declaration, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the promise is that they will be filled. We become so desperate for the true source of righteousness, Jesus, that we want our whole life to become more like him. And it starts with me and then ultimately ends up to the world around me, which leads us to the second part, the external you see, God wants to do something in you so he can do something through you. The declaration, blessed are the merciful, the promise, for they will be shown mercy. Because the Spirit has already done the work of showing you and me how desperately we need God's mercy, that's poor in spirit, we've been commissioned to be God's agents of mercy in the world. Which last week, we talked about what happens next. The sixth beatitude is blessed are the pure in heart. And the promise is that they will see God. You see, the mourning of our sin, our divided hearts, leads to us having true sorrow, godly sorrow. And because of the impact of our brokenness leading, it leads us to true repentance. 
And God in his mercy and grace not only comforts, but forgives. Thus purifying our hearts so that we become more like Jesus. When this happens, God opens not just our eyes, but our hearts. So we can see his handiwork, his glory and his presence everywhere. We see him in the eyes of the homeless person on the street. We see him when we look to the heavens. We see his handiwork in creation from the billions of galaxies in the universe to the beauty of Clear Lake, Iowa. I've recently been reading this book called Play the Man by Pastor Mark Batterson. And and this group of guys that I'm going through it with, he makes this great comment about the importance of learning, of seeking knowledge about God so we can see God as part of manhood and also part of our worship. Listen to what he writes. I subscribe to Albert Einstein's school of thought. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. If all truth is God's truth, then every ology is a branch of theology. If you want to know your creator better, get to know his creation. Every facet of creation reveals something about God's power, wisdom, and grace. When astronomers look into the night sky, they have a greater appreciation for the constellation, the stars, and the planets. They see more because they know more. When musicians listen to a symphony, they have a greater appreciation for the chords, melodies, and instrumentation. They hear more because they know more. When sommeliers sample wine, that's a big word, isn't it? They have a greater appreciation for the flavor, texture, and origin of wine. Why? They taste more because they know more. And I would argue this. When Christians discover the knowledge of how deep and wide God's love is for us, his mercy and grace shown to us, his forgiveness for us, we can't help but have a greater love and desire for him. We see more of God because we know more of God. The Beatitudes are the Spirit's way, the Holy Spirit's way of schooling us about the amazing love of God. It's kind of God's educational system is breaking us down, which leads us to the last beatitude that has to do with God doing something through us and preparing us for the final one when the world is going to do something to us. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons and daughters of God. Matthew 5, 9. You see, just like the previous two beatitudes, we cannot truly live out this beatitude peacemaking until the Holy Spirit has done the work of the previous Beatitudes inside of us. This is also, in my opinion, the hardest one to live out. Now, you'll see each one gets hard and then progressively harder. So, for instance, it's hard to show mercy. It is. It's hard to comprehend what it means to have a pure heart that can see God. Which is why it leads us to the hardest of them all, becoming a person who makes peace in the world. Peacemaking is the direct result of a meek and gentle heart. Now this, again, begs some questions. What does Jesus mean when he says peacemakers? What does it mean to make peace? And what does it mean to be called sons and daughters of God? 
Now, Jesus combines two really potent words to create one beautiful, challenging word. Peacemaker. Now, the word for in Hebrew, which Jesus would have understood the, nation, the nature of this word, in the Old Testament, the word for peace is this word shalom. And shalom means more than just peace. It actually is a word used to describe something much bigger. It's meant to describe wholeness and overall well-being for all of creation. It's God's peace. It's everything as it should be. The benediction that you often hear at the end of a service, we do this in the traditional service. I do a modification of it on Sunday mornings. The benediction that you hear actually comes directly from God speaking to Moses on, that's right, the guy who parted the Red Sea and delivered the Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt. God tells him to speak this blessing over Aaron, his brother, and the people of Israel. It says this. This is found in Exodus 6, 23 through 26. Thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Shalom. God wants to bring wholeness to not just our planet, but inside of us. He wants to bring wholeness to the whole being of creation. And it starts with you and me. Disciples of Jesus want to bring true peace, wholeness and wellness into the world. Now that word peace, he then combines with the word maker. Maker implies that it's active, it's not passive, it's participatory. There's creation and building in peace. Theologian and writer R. Kent Hughes says it this way. As Jesus used the word peacemaker here, it is a dynamic word bursting with energy. Both parts of the word peacemakers taken together describe one who actively pursues peace in its fullness. He pursues more than the absence of conflict. He pursues wholeness and well-being. And this is why peacemaking is so hard. Because it's the only time you need to make peace is when there's actually conflict. And I don't know about you, but I don't like conflict. Most people try to avoid it. Some people enjoy it. We live in a world that is filled with conflict right now. Conflict in our nation, from racism to politics to even within church, conflict seems to be everywhere. And sadly, some people get really excited about it. I mean, just turn to YouTube or Facebook. Think about how often that we share things that incite conflict instead of resolve conflict. It's when the video shows up of the riots and we just want to, we put it out there. We share posts. We're drawn into things that seem to really catch our eye. It's that rubbernecking when things go wrong. That's part of our human brokenness. We kind of secretly like it. Now, there's a difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping. Peacemaking, uh, well, quite frankly, peacemaking is that's done through relationship. Peacekeeping is done through rules and consequences. People who peacekeep, it's law enforcement. You set laws in place. You put a badge and a gun and handcuffs on somebody so that they can keep the peace. But here's the thing. Peacekeeping does not require a heart change. It just requires fear. 
fear that somebody has power over you. And it's that power of a police officer or a judge or whoever it is that incites fear so that you have peace. Peacemaking is done through the hard and often dangerous work of relationship. And that's why it's so hard. But above those, there's actually one that's a little harder, and that's the troublemaker. The troublemaker is somebody who actually looks to undo peace and intentionally wants to cause conflict in the world, in the home, and in the church. These are people who intentionally look to stir the pot, whether it's out of ego, selfish ambition, maliciousness, or simply for the sake of doing evil. They want to cause disunity amongst God's people and in the world. And the Bible actually tells us the greatest troublemaker of all was Satan. Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the troublemaking of Satan as the schemes of the devil. This is why we have to look to Jesus. See, Jesus came as the ultimate example of peacemaking. He looks, uh, he came into a hostile world at a great expense. Romans 5.10 says this. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, that means being brought back into relationship, shall we be saved through his life? Now for the Jews, this word peace in their world actually had a lot of baggage attached to it. See, the Jews would have heard peacemaking as, quite frankly, troublesome. And the reason was, Rome came with what was called Pax Romana or Pax Romana. In it, the Roman Empire's theme was the peace of Rome. Well, Rome brought peace by the sword. Submit or you'll be submitted. That's a false peace. They actually had brought the peace of Rome to Israel. They subjugated Rome. And as a result, the Jews, the Israelites, were desperately trying to get out from underneath the Roman Empire's thumb. There was actually a group, a vigilante group called the Zealots, who believed that the peace would only come to Israel through violence, not through relationship. And here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus purposely chose a zealot, a vigilante, to be part of his 12 disciples. He purposely chose Simon, knowing that he did not want to bring peace through relationship, but through a sword. Why? Well, because Jesus wants to reconcile everyone. Needless to say, Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. And it, it's... For some, it's exciting news. For others, it's troublesome. Peacemaking is not about playing nice. Again, we just have to look at the person of Jesus. Jesus openly defied and called out the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You see, Jesus did come to make peace, but he rarely avoided conflict. Nor did Jesus swing a sword or bring an army. He made peace through sacrifice. He didn't come with blood, bloodshed apart from his own. He came to make peace the way God intended, which is through relationship. Jesus made peace. He sacrificed his reputation by speaking honestly, even if it made enemies. Listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you. 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. That's kind of harsh. Why was Jesus saying this? Well, the Pharisees were not drawing people to God's heart, but simply to focus on the law. And as a result, they drew people away from God. They actually made people obstinate or made, them, made it harder to follow God because they weren't focusing on God's heart. They were focusing on the law. But the law was not meant to be what we live by. We're meant to live by people who love God. And guess what? When we love God, we obey the law. But obedience to the law does not mean you love God. Jesus understood what we need to, is that peacemaking can only happen through justice and truth. True peace cannot be made by ignoring the wrongs or the pain caused by conflict and the sin of others. But Jesus did something more than just step into it and say hard things. He did the hard things. Ultimately, Jesus sacrificed his own life to make peace between us and God. Colossians 1, 19 through 21. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were even enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. If we're to be like Jesus... It starts with having a heart, a mindset like Jesus, a heart of reconciliation. And this is where the Beatitudes come in. Where reconciliation begins first is in your and my heart, because that's where all the trouble starts. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. This is why we need the Holy Spirit to help us become pure in heart. It's what we talked about last week. Only the heart that is purified in the forge of God's grace. You see, peacemakers are forged in the fire of forgiveness and mercy so that they can see people as God sees them in need of reconciliation as image bearers of God who are lost. There is a selflessness as well as a sincerity that is necessary if one is to be a peacemaker. This is a quote uh, from a guy named Terry L. Johnson. Those who already have low opinion of themselves, who know their sin and mourn it, who know their hearts and are poor in spirit, they are the peacemakers. Those who are defensive or touchy, who are so thin-skinned and sensitive that they cannot be vulnerable and open, can never be them. Similarly, those who are pure in heart, who are not out for personal gain, who genuinely want the best for others, they are peacemakers. Those who are double-minded, whose motives are mixed, who are insincere, or who approach life with a hidden agenda, they cannot be peacemakers. Followers of Jesus are meant to be Jesus' agents of reconciliation in the world. But in order to get there, we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to kind of deal with the icky stuff. Self-interest and self-concern. And here is we, where we see the circle complete. See, just as 
It's it's being poor in spirit that allows us to show mercy. Just as it is those who mourn who have been comforted are the ones who have pure hearts and can see God. It's only the meek and humble who can become peacemakers in God's kingdom. Peacemaking requires humility, gentleness, patience, and a whole lot of tolerance. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3. As a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Peacemakers aren't afraid to step into conflict. Now, I want to share kind of a, it's a humbling story for me, and it was one when in my early 20s. I was actually a youth pastor at a church in Egan, Minnesota, a church called Peace Reform Church, and the pastor there was a man named Al Pruis. So I'm all of 27 years old, and I got to tell you, I have the deepest, utmost respect for this man. He was one of the most gentle and kind men I've ever known. I was a rather arrogant, or rather, truthfully, a rather insecure 27-year-old man. I would often come into his office on a daily basis, sometimes a regular basis, ready to share my infinite wisdom in all my 27 years of life with him, What I really mean is I came in to complain about everything I thought that we were doing wrong as a church. One day I walked and sat down in his chair as I had done many days before. And before I could even speak, he let out a big sigh. And inquisitively, I said, hey, what's wrong, Al? And he said, what he said next absolutely wrecked me. He said, Jason... Every time you walk into my office, my heart just sinks. Quite frankly, I dread it. I know you've had a rough go, and I, I know, and I want you to know I love you, but you exhaust me. <laughs> you come in here every day, and you just have nothing good to say. It's exhausting. I walked out of that room. Now, he wasn't mean about it. He wasn't condescending. He simply spoke truth in love. His words waged war inside of me, not between him and me, but here inside of who I was. I was not being a peacemaker. I was being a troublemaker. I walked back to my office, sat in my chair, and I just wept. And I don't mean the little tears. I mean the ugly crying that you hope nobody sees. A little while later, I went back to his office. I was broken. I was contrite. I confessed my sin to him and I repented right then and there. I apologized and asked for his forgiveness, which he quickly and graciously gave to me. That moment changed the course of my life so much so that almost 20 years later, I still talk about it. It set me on a different course. He made peace by stepping in and saying in the hard things. There are two ingredients necessary for peacemaking. The first one is heart work. Okay, the first one is something that has to be done inside of us. Listen to what Galatians 6.1 says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
but watch yourself so you also may not be tempted. How do we do this? Well, first, we must check our own hearts. Check yourself. Are you guilty of the same sin that you're calling out? That's the person who's doing the peacemaking. Second is they need to have healthy boundaries. Make sure you don't fall into the same trap. Peacemaking means sometimes you have to put boundaries between you and the person who's causing problems. That's not just for your benefit, but for theirs. Listen to what Paul says in Titus 3. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Sometimes peacemaking requires distance and space. And how or why do we need to do that? Well, because if they don't want to hear it, if they're not willing to step into it, well, you can only do so much. How many of you are internal processors? You know, you have to work on the inside before you express it outside. How many of you are external processors that you have to talk things out in order to work through it? Well, I can tell you I'm, I'm an external processor. My wife is an internal processor. I cannot tell you how many times I've escalated a conflict because instead of giving her space to figure it out, I wanted to press in and work through it. And instead of giving her the space she needed, I selfishly pushed it on her, thus escalating the conflict. That's why we need to do the heart work first. We need to self-examine through the work of the Holy Spirit before we step into peacemaking. The second ingredient is what I call the hard work. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 14 through 16. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves. Excuse me. And blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming, troublemaking. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. We have to have people who, after they've done the heart work, are able to come and do the hard work to speak the truth in love. This is the hardest part is some of you are really good about saying the hard things, but you completely lack love and compassion. Others of you are really good at loving people, but are terrified to say the difficult things. We as peacemakers, if that's what we are, have to do both. Then there's the other part, and this is the person who is hearing it. Hearing the hard things is often difficult as well, because I think we would all agree it's never easy to be confronted with sin, to hear the hard things. Of course, we want to get defensive. And sometimes you might immediately. But when you've done the work with the Spirit, maybe you'll slow down just enough to receive wisdom. Proverbs actually has a lot to say about what it means to hear hard things. Listen to Proverbs 12.1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. Wow, that's kind of harsh. Proverbs 13.18. Whoever disregards discipline comes to poverty and shame, but whoever heeds correction is honored. Proverbs 15, 32, those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction 
gains understanding. There's this old saying that says you can only take care of your side of the street. Someone who speaks the truth in love has done what they can do to make peace, but the person who is in conflict has the choice what to do with it. You cannot force it on them. They must accept it. But some people simply don't want peace. You see, it's hard to make peace with someone who loves war. Let me say that again. It's hard to make peace with someone who loves war. Some people just like conflict. And Jesus warns us that people who want that are troublemakers, not peacemakers. Now, again, we look to Jesus and even the apostles. When you read the Gospels, it seems very clear that Jesus isn't trying to always make peace with the religious leaders and Pharisees. But Jesus wasn't the problem. They were. They didn't want peace. They wanted to have conflict with Jesus. They sought out conflict. So Jesus spoke truth. Paul had sharp things to say to troublemakers, so much so even saying, have nothing to do with them. You see, it's not peace at any cost. It's peace at a great cost. Jesus rarely tried to make peace with those who didn't want it. He usually did it for those who didn't even know they needed peace or who were desperately searching for it. I know some of you today are struggling to find peace in your life. I'm here to tell you, Jesus wants you to have peace in him. Now, just as there are two, or two ingredients of peace, there's two directions of peace or shalom making. And they all flow from this text in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. And I want you to hear these words. Okay, check this out. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 21. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, peacemaking. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The first direction is vertical. We need to be at peace with God. Jesus did this through the work of the cross. Faith, when we put our faith in what Jesus did on the cross, the war ends. Jesus died to end the war between you and God. Second is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is where the Beatitudes come in. The path of the Beatitudes is the ongoing work of becoming like Jesus so we can become his ambassadors. That's where Galatians 5, through 26, the fruit of the Spirit comes in. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. 
which leads us to the second direction. The first one is vertically. The second one is horizontally. God wants there to be peace, shalom in the world with each other. It first starts with peace within you. That's the new creation. When I realize I am at peace with God, I can have peace within myself. I can forgive myself for my sins and the wrongs that I've done. I can let my old sins be buried with Christ in the tomb so that I can be resurrected as a new creation. The second is peace with our neighbors. You and I are called to go out into the world to be peacemakers. Now, peacemaking, there's two ways in which peacemakers happen. The first one is inside the conflict. The second one is outside the conflict. When you're inside the conflict, you need to admit you're not perfect. Confess your part in it. Humble yourself before God. Seek Jesus. Pray for God's mercy. Pray for God's eyes and heart that you would see the person you're having conflict the way Jesus does and pray for God's wisdom, how to act. That's just the Beatitudes. If you're outside of the conflict, do the exact same thing. Ask how you can be a part of it. Make sure that you're aware that you have no right to point fingers. Confess your own sins before you bring sins to others. Humble yourself before God and ask him to speak through you. Seek Jesus' wisdom. Pray to be God's agent of mercy. Pray for God's eyes and heart so that you might know how to interact in the conflict. Both, of you, both parts need the Beatitudes. We need peacemaking everywhere. We need it first and foremost with God. And if you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ today, I'm inviting you to do it now. Second, we need peace within yourself. That's the first three Beatitudes. It's recognizing, admitting your sin, mourning over it, humbling yourself, coming to Jesus. We need peace within our homes. A lot of marriages are in conflict. Seek reconciliation, ask for forgiveness, move towards restoration. We need peace within our church. Churches are notorious for conflict. The most divided time in the United States is in the church. Whether it's racial division, denominational division, marriages in conflict, even church culture in conflict. We need to seek forgiveness and reconciliation. We need to stop comparing and we need to do what we can to bridge the gap. We need to seek peace within our community. Be the bridge. Sometimes you have neighbors who are in conflict. The issues of racism that are going on throughout our world. Don't just be against racism, be anti-racist. Speak truth and love. In our LGBT, LGBTQ communities, so many people in the gay community, the transgender community, don't feel the love of Christ because there are no bridges extending the hands and feet and voice of Jesus to bring peace. Don't add to the strife. And then lastly, within your world, not everybody's called to go out into the world, but don't celebrate conflict. Promote healing and peacemaking. Peacemaking is the last beatitude dealing with you because it is the most difficult to do because it requires the most work and it offers the most to lose. And what if you can't find peace? Sometimes people simply don't want it. Well, when that's the case, pray, pray, and pray. Not everybody wants peace. Romans 12, 18 says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, not the other person, live at peace with everyone. I want to give you a big question. If you're in conflict right now, are you open to peace? Are you open to reconciliation? A pure and broken heart is always ready and open for healing. 
I want to end very quickly. What does it mean that Jesus calls us sons and daughters of God? This is not God declaring it over you, but rather the world. When you truly embody the peacemaking of Christ, the world sees you as a child, an image bearer and an ambassador of King Jesus, the Prince of Peace. When we do this, those in the world get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus because they see you, me and us as sons and daughters of the King, hoping, praying for reconciliation. If Jesus is the Prince of Peace, we as his disciples become his peacemakers. I want to leave you with a challenge and a big idea. Where is God calling you to begin praying for shalom, peace in your sphere of influence? And is God calling you to do something about it? The big idea is simple. The world is longing for true peacemakers, shalom bringers, those who bring peace, peace both horizontally, horizontally and vertically. Let us be the people who bring peace in the world. Would you pray with me? Father, the Beatitudes, if we allow them, they will wreck us. They will tear us down to the core of who we are so that you can rebuild us in your image. God, where there is conflict and strife, help us to act wisely to know how to be peacemakers, but let it first start with us. Jesus, thank you that you came to bring peace first, even when we didn't want it. You sought to end the hostility, and for those who would want it, who declare it, they have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Lord, work through us. Help us be the church and the people you've called us to be. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now receive this benediction. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may you be the peacemakers that God is calling you and created you to be. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day.